Hello, my fellow perpetually determined advocates. We are back after an unexpected and unscheduled hiatus. Um, I things have been a little crazy over here, and I really appreciate you all being patient with me while I worked through things with my family. Uh, today, I really just. In light of recent events, I want to, basically this one's going to be a bit of a rant, but it's also slightly informational too, uh, kind of combining those into one, talking about the state of psychiatric care. Now, many of us who have neurodivergent kids understand our children are, you know, prone to unexpected meltdowns where they lash out, whether that's against others or themselves. You know, these things happen. This is part of them being forced to live in a world that is not suited to how their brain operates, right? Part of being a neurodivergent person, having to navigate a neurotypical world means that, you know, your sensory overload issues can get hit quite frequently. It can send you into that meltdown. And, you know, then there's the idea of, you know, PDA coming into the mix and just that that overload of demands that everyday life puts on kids and adults and my youngest has really been struggling I mean this is back to school time and a new school year is always a challenge but this year he changed schools so there's the new school year a new school um, and several new teachers because he's now in grade four, which means he's he's changing classrooms a few times. He has you know a few different teachers this year instead of just having his main teacher and then his you know the people that do PE and then someone who does music. Um, he now has a PE a music um, the main teacher he's with, um, a science teacher, a math teacher, right? So he's, he's moving around a bit. Um, I will say that I feel a, f a whole lot more comfortable this year with the teacher that they've placed him in, in what they call ABU. Um, because in the state of Texas, autism <laughs> falls under emotional disturbance, and so that's put that lands him in what's called the alternative behavioral unit, um, which, of course, I've mentioned previously, the school has told me we want to get him out of before he gets much older, because when he gets older, he'll be in there with children that are, well, have alternative behavior or violent behavior um, for not necessarily neurodivergent reasons, not talking about meltdowns. These are people who are just prone to violence, um, which is concerning. And so he is, you know, struggling with back to school. Um, 
he's gotten upset nearly every day and you know his his teacher though in that classroom is a very caring individual she's listened to the things that we've said she's reached out to us about you know him that that some of the things that he's experiencing just to see what she can do to help i mean she's already just leaps and bounds ahead of what we dealt with last year um, but he has, outside of school, he's still having um, some struggles with self-harm, with aggression, um, emotional dysregulation. It's just been a very tumultuous time for him. And as a result, we have, again, gotten the recommendation from his psychiatrist for residential treatment. And so in light of a recent event that was rather horrifying for both his father and I, um, we had seriously considered that this, this was the time. Um, and so I started looking at the different treatment centers because initially one near Houston had been recommended and then not too long ago, a couple weeks ago when I was at the psychiatrist's office with my um, older kiddo, my 17-year-old, um, they handed me information for a different one. They said they kind of liked that one better. And so I brought the information home and I looked it up and I started reading reviews and it was an absolute no from me. I looked up reviews on the several other places around Texas, including the place that I had originally um, found information on and found that that one I don't know if it's a change in ownership or what, but the more I looked, the worse things got. And as a historian, I've, you know, I know the the horror stories about the days of, you know, the, the past when facilities for you know, mental health facilities were just absolutely wretched. You know, the, the horrible mistreatments, the things that happened to people who were in these facilities. Um, I know these stories. And then, you know, there was a big reform movement to make those changes. Whenever these things were getting exposed to the public. And for me, I felt like surely things can't be perfect, obviously, but, but have improved. And then the more I looked into this, the more I realized I don't know that they really have. I don't know that things have really changed. And for those of you who are also dealing with the idea of residential treatment, research. Look into the place that you're being told to send your child. Um, read the the reviews, um, see if there are any reports out there. Um, one 
of the hospitals that I was told to take my kiddo to, literally there's an entire page of articles talking about this treatment center and how, you know, just news stories of patients escaping, parents trying to, you know, making pleas for people to help them find their child who disappeared while at this treatment center, um, that one of them was that the place was shut down because of what was going on there. And I mean, there are just red flags and I did a general search for residential treatment centers near me and just started looking through the reviews and they're abysmal across the board. I found one place that had these absolutely stellar reviews and realized that they only take adults and my hopes were dashed. I mean, I, I sat and I cried because my son needs somewhere where he can go and they can offer him help that I can't provide to him. I am not, you know, I, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't have degrees in psychology. I can't give him the tools that people in those positions with that knowledge can give him. And the treatment centers where we're being told he needs to go so that he can stay for, you know, like a two-week inpatient stay and they can adjust his medication and help set him up with the tools and, um, you know, different processes that he can use when he starts to feel that overwhelm. Things that we can continue to do at home, they're all wretched and none of them are really providing what they're supposed to provide. Some of the things that I found, one of the biggest issues that um, parents and patients alike were sharing about these facilities, one of them was lack of communication. And in that, I mean, the communication between the doctors and the parents or the patients, like the idea of sharing, you know, what is the treatment plan? treatment plans not being shared because the parents or the patients felt like there really wasn't one, um, that no one really had any sort of idea. Um, and also just not little time spent with the patients with regard to, um, actually seeing a doctor more than just, um, you know, a PA or a nurse coming in to say, you know, how are you doing today? Um, and that's not to discount PAs or nurses. They're very knowledgeable, very hardworking people. But when you're told that your child or that you are going to be meeting with a psychologist or a therapist regularly while you're in this hospital, you expect that to be the case. And it seems like most of the time that's just not it. Um, there were reports of people calling over and over and not getting anyone to answer the phone or they would answer the phone, put them on hold and just leave them there until the call cut out. Uh, people who couldn't get information on their children who were in the facility and most of them only allow you to visit one day a week. 
and won't allow you in to see your child otherwise, um, which is really scary for me because my son has severe abandonment fears. I don't, we've never been able to figure out why other than it's rooted in the fact that he genuinely believes that he needs to be just, we need to, he's been saying since he was a little kid, I mean, he's still a little kid, but since he was much smaller, he's been saying, you should just get rid of me. You should just get rid of me. And I think he has this horrifying fear in the back of his head that, you know, that would actually happen. And we reassure him constantly, no, we're never going to get rid of you. And, you know, we won't do that because we love you. Well, you shouldn't love me. And so he has this idea of how we should be reacting to him and how he fears people will react to him and he projects that outward um and so if i were to take him somewhere and check him in and i'm only allowed to see him once a week he's going to feel like he has in fact been abandoned that that has happened you know that he has reached the point where we got rid of him and i cannot bear the thought of him going through that kind of pain and that kind of fear. That's not something I ever want to have my child deal with. Um, other reports which kind of tie into that are that some of these children were having their, um, their phone privileges, their ability to speak with their family taken away as a punishment. And that just seems draconian like you're taking away their ability to speak to their family you're taking away a parent's ability to contact their child to be able to know how that child is doing and when you have no one answering the phone and then they're not allowing the children to speak to their family members what on earth has to be going through the minds of these parents, I can't even imagine, you know. And then whenever some of these parents were saying, okay, well, I'm just going to check my child out of here, they would be told they can't. Or they would be told, if you check your child out, we're going to call Child Protective Services on you. When the abuse is happening in the facility, not outside of the facility. And if anything, the parent is saving their child by removing them from a place that is treating them in such a horrible way. And that was like the treatment was in a lot of these cases, just wretched. You know, you have these, um, both, like I said, parents and patients were in there, um, in these reviews explaining and talking about how they were being insulted, um, ridiculed, belittled, and assaulted by staff members. You know, um, one young woman who was in for an eating disorder was being fat shamed by staff members. I, I mean, I, I was just absolutely speechless reading some of these things. Um, the other thing that I saw used quite frequently was an abundance of like heavy doses of sleeping meds, whether it was melatonin or prescription medication. Um, some of them just said sleeping meds. Um, 
one report did actually say melatonin, but just like really heavy doses to knock the kids out. Um, and there were other reports of children being administered medications that their parents never approved in intake and that they were never called about. Um, and then, you know, also just the lack of, um, not just not being seen by a therapist, but this idea that a lot of these facilities talk about group therapy, right? They have the kids go into rooms at certain points for group therapy. Um, across the board, uh, there were stories of people saying group therapy is literally just going into the day room and playing cards or chess or, you know, doing crosswords. Like group therapy is just sitting in a room with other people and, and playing some games. There is no real therapy to it. It's just sitting in a room with other people, right? Um, and then just so many, so many reports of mistreatment and abuse. Um, one of the reports was that uh, there was a patient who, because of the heavy use of sleeping meds, um, was wetting the bed. And they complained because they were just too, they could not get out of bed to go to the restroom. And so they finally were able to get the dosage, the dosage rather, um, backed down enough, but the urine soaked sheets were never removed from the bed. So this patient had wet the bed twice and those sheets were never removed, no matter how many times they asked. Uh, there was one where the they had like a a quiet room, a safe room for uh, patients that fear they're going to have a meltdown. Like that's where they would take them if they're going to have a meltdown or an outburst, um, and because it's a, a place where they you know they can't hurt themselves or any, you know, anything else. It's a safe space. And for one of these parents was talking about how her child is prone to those at night and the facility itself did not have enough staff because that particular room was in a different wing from where the patient's uh, rooms were. And so since they didn't have anyone to staff that wing at night, her son would be forced to sleep on the floor in the hall if he felt like he was going to, uh, if he had an outburst, because that way he was um, away from any potential harm of him in his room with any of the things in his room. He would have to sleep on the floor in the hallway. Um, the number of reports of people who said their children were abused or patients saying that they were abused, whether it was, um, I didn't see anything about sexual abuse, thank goodness, but, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, which in a psychiatric facility is just anywhere. It's terrible, but honestly, they're going there to try to, you know, learn how to cope. They're going there because they need a space where they can safely, you know, navigate what is happening to them. And for that to be a place that is just 
immensely worse than where they're coming from is just ridiculous. And, you know, there are some of these facilities, and this is the other reason you need to make sure you research where someone is telling you your child needs to go. Some of these facilities also house um, not just patients that are there for um, issues of... I don't like to use the term emotional disturbance because it kind of agitates me based on what we've dealt with with my son. But just like people who are there for self-harm or suicidal ideation or eating disorders or right, people that are there for those types of issues, depression, right? Or, you know, they're housing them together with um, children that have that are in those facilities because they've committed some sort of violent crime. And so you have these violent um, children who some of them are much older housed in the same places, sometimes in the same room with children that are there for issues like, you know, um, self-harm, suicide, eating disorders, depression. And that's, that's scary Right, not to say that this isn't in any way meant to shame people who have committed violent crimes as a child due to you know these types of issues, but you don't immediately introduce them in the you know, the you have to have better you have to keep a better eye on them because if they're prone to violent outbursts for things that could very well not be in their own control, right? If, you know, it could be something that is impulse control. It could be rooted in bipolar or schizophrenia or some sort of um, mental health issue. But that is not, you don't immediately house them with people that are there for nonviolent issues. You don't put older, violent children in the same area with younger, smaller children. I mean, there were issues of and that some of the reports were you know patients saying that they had been you know physically assaulted by some of these patients um by some of the older patients and nothing was done about it it was reported to the staff and the staff did nothing in some cases the staff saw it and they just kind of said stop it and there was no intervention um, in one case, a young lady had, you know, one of these, the, the, one of the older patients that was in the, the room with her, um, got mad at her and proceeded to attack her and then, uh, like slammed her face into a brick wall and her teeth went through her lip. I mean, it's just not just issues of violence from staff, but violence between patients. And I do understand that there's no way to really know when someone is going to have a violent outburst. And I'm not in any way advocating for violent patients to be in any sort of solitary type of thing. I, I understand that there are people who have these types of outbursts and there's nothing they can do to help it. And I'm not shaming them for it and I'm not criticizing them for it. What I am criticizing is a hospital's just absolute neglect in not keeping a better eye on mixing 
those types of patients in with your other nonviolent patients because that's a recipe for disaster because you don't know when this person may have some sort of outburst you need to make sure someone's there to keep an eye on things you need to make sure that someone is intervening in the case of an outbreak of violence there needs to be better states of psychiatric care I I cannot honestly believe that we are still in a place where these types of horrifying reviews are still coming out of facilities, especially when some of the children that are in there, some of the patients that are in there are not like they've been sent there, right? They do not have a choice in the time that they're there. Some of these people have not gone and checked their children in or gone and checked themselves in. Some of these people were forced to stay in these facilities and to then you know, because of something that happened, whether they made an attempt on their life or whatever. And so for them to then have to endure treatment like this that is just going to exacerbate what is already happening to them, it's horrifying. I don't even know what to make of this so many of these reports I was just left speechless and like I said I I, after a few hours of searching and trying to find somewhere that I could take my son where he would be safe I I gave up and I turned off the computer and I just sat and cried because from what I can tell there isn't anywhere that's truly safe for him because nearly every place I saw had just terrifying reviews. Now, were there a few good reviews? Yes. And I understand that you are going to have a mixed bag. Like you, you can have a place that has decent care, but there's still going to be someone who finds something to complain about. And I'm able to, you know, critically analyze the information but whenever it's not just a few bad reviews mixed in or kind of an even mix of the two whenever it is overwhelmingly negative reviews all with similar uh, complaints all with similar issues and a few good reviews in there just kind of sprinkled in amongst all the terror that's evidence to suggest this is not a good situation so do your research um, read up on the places check for any sort of reports of neglect or abuse um, because when it comes to our kiddos right um, we have to be their advocates we have to be standing up for them and clearly they need it now more than ever. Hello and welcome to PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra, 
This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or pathological demand avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.